Welcome, and thank you for streaming this sermon. At Heritage Baptist Church, we believe that the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus can truly change lives. So it is our hope and prayer that this service stirs up your affection for Christ and helps you to draw closer to Him. For more information, please visit hbchazlett.org. If you win your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, continue our series in the book of Colossians. And we had um, preached on verses uh, 15, 16, uh, two weeks ago, on the deity of Christ. And so we're calling that, that sermon, Deity of Christ number 1. And tonight, the deity of Christ number 2. And so speaking on again, the series on the preeminence of Christ... Colossians 1, look with me in verse 17. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless the reading of your word. Lord, may you use it, and may you be glorified in everything that's said. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, again, writing from prison, is reaffirming in the book of Colossians the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Again, we know that, and we've followed this now for several weeks, that the Gnostics had infiltrated the church there in Colossae and, and uh, some of their beliefs. And really, the, belief, the Gnostics' belief was just kind of an admixture of religions, that there was no religion greater than another religion, that all of them just kind of fit together and all of them kind of just work together. And, and uh, Paul is coming back to the church of Colossae and saying, no, Jesus Christ is above all, that he excels all religions and beliefs, that he, that he excels all persons and beliefs. He excels all. He's above all. In verses 12 and 14, as we studied it last, a couple weeks ago, Paul gives thanks that the Father, the Heavenly Father, had qualified us for heavenly things. For heavenly places. I'm thankful that the second Adam qualified us, forgave us our sins, and qualified us to have heaven, to enter heaven. The first Adam disqualified us, the second Adam qualified us. We see that in verses 12 and 13, and then we see again in verses 13 that he delivered us. I'm thankful that Christ delivered us. He rescued us from the power of darkness and translated us in the kingdom of his dear son. And then, verses 14, he redeemed us in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And we said before that the blood of Christ is the currency of redemption. The blood of Christ is the currency of redemption. It cost the blood of Jesus to redeem us from the curse of the law, the blood of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And Jesus Christ died for all. Now, Paul, in these verses, verses 15 through 17, or verses 15 through 19, is reaffirming the truth of the absolute deity of Jesus Christ, that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that he's God with skin on. And so we see in verses 15 that Christ is the manifestation of God. Let's look at verse 15 now. Paul says this, "...who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature." who is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ was the manifestation of God, an exact representation 
of, of, of God, of God. John 14, 9 says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. These are Jesus Christ's words. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There is absolutely, without a doubt, there is no uh, debate that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. It's, it's, not, it's without debate. There are verses after verse after verse, 1 Timothy 3.16 and, and you know, 1 John 1.1 1, 1, and just go on in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4. I mean, and I'm a, just talking about a few. There are just multiple verses that make it very, very clear that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. If you want to know what God is like, he is just like Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, he is Jesus Christ. If you want to know what, Jesus, what God says, what does Jesus say? <laughs> if you want to know what God does, what does Jesus do? Or what did he do while he was here on earth? Why, what, what, the, the example he sets in the Bible, that's, that's God. You want to know how God loves? How did Jesus love? He's God in the flesh. Sometimes we just don't make that connection. We, we think about Jesus Christ and we think about, well, how can we ever really know God? Well, God, that is God. God with skin on. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then, verses 15, we see the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ as creator. And I love this now. He is the firstborn of every creature. I didn't go into it as much as you could, but boy, we, we talk about that we have become a new creation, a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. That same word is used in talking about our new creature. We are a new creature. That new creature is a new creation. Here's talking about he's the firstborn of all creation. He is the beginning. He is the source. He is uh, before all things. And he is superior to all creation because he created it. Now the context here is, again, speaking to the Gnostics. The Gnostics believe Jesus Christ was kind of in, in, in a sense, a, not in a sense, they believe him to be created and that he was a part of the angelic beings and that he wasn't even the first in rank that he was just down there somewhere. And so what Paul is saying here is, no, no, he is firstborn. He is the first in rank of all the creatures. He, he is the firstborn of, of everything. Why? Verse 16 tells you why. Because he created all things. And I said two weeks ago, I said, well, if, if you are a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or whatever the case is, and you believe that he was created, which they do, then in verse 16, that means he created himself, which we all go, Laugh out loud. Now that it's not very funny, it's funny to me. Hilarious that someone who has the mental capabilities of just reading the scripture as it states, that it says in verse 16, for by him were all things created. Who is the him? Who is the image of the invisible God? Jesus Christ created all things. And therefore, if verse 15 is saying that Jesus Christ was created, if that's really what it's saying, then Jesus Christ created himself. It'd be kind of difficult to do. Verse 16. Not only is he superior to all creation, but he is the creator of all things. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and what? For him. And that is that Jesus Christ is the primary agent of the Godhead in creation. That when you, if you were there on the first day of creation 
and you heard that voice, let there be light. That, that voice would have been the voice of Jesus Christ. The same voice that Moses heard from the burning bush. That voice. John chapter 8, verse 58 makes that very clear, that Jesus said himself that he was the one who spoke out of the burning bush. Jesus Christ is the primary agent of the Godhead in the creation. We're not saying that others, the other two parts of the Godhead didn't have a part. Absolutely they did. In the beginning, God. That word God there in the Hebrew is Elohim, which means all three. All three of the parts of the Godhead had a part in creation, but Jesus Christ was the primary part of the deity, primary part of the Trinity in whom created all things. Jesus Christ. Not only is he the creator of all things, but he's the sustainer of all things. He is the curator. He is the one who is keeping all things. And we'll cover that here in a moment. Again, as we think about the creation, there are only two choices. You either believe in goo or God. There's not three choices. There's not four choices. There's two. You either believe in goo or you believe in God. You, believe in, you either believe in matter, the eternal matter. Even the evolutionists believe in the eternal matter. They do. They believe in eternal matter. They believe in a speck of dust or whatever they want to put there that began to spin around and big bang it happened. But they believe in eternal matter. Ask them where that matter came from. They don't know. It's either eternal matter or the eternal master. And I'm just going to believe the master. I, I, believe, I believe personally it's easier to believe and have faith that all of this was created than it is to believe that it just so happened. It takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in creation by an intelligent, <laughs> superior Jehovah God. God created all things through, again, the primary agent of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, tonight, verse 17, And He, that is Christ, is before all things. Oh, okay, He's eternal. He's God in the flesh. And by Him all things consist. He is, verse 17, he is the curator. He controls it all. And I just want, just from the very beginning, understand, he controls it all because he made it all. He made it all. He is eternal in his existence. And this is affirmed here that he was, again, look at that verse again, and he is before all things. Jesus Christ before all things. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W-O-R-D. And the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, the Word, capital W-O-R-D, Jesus Christ. And without Him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus Christ, there in the beginning. Jesus Christ, again, before the beginning of the earth, He's been coexistence with the Godhead from eternity past. In other words, when Jesus Christ was born in the manger, that wasn't the beginning of Jesus Christ. He's always been. Always. In fact, again, in John 8, verse 58, which we've covered a lot here of late and a couple of years ago, too, in depth, Jesus Christ said, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I'm sorry, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. <laughs> no, he said, I am. I am. I am that I am. The ever-present one. Always existed. And they, put, they picked up stones to stone him with. Because they understood, the Jews did, they understood that he was equating himself with God. Because only God is eternal. Only God is before Abraham. And so, um, again, Jesus Christ claiming eternality 
and claiming equality with God, being equal with God. Hmm. By the way, John chapter 1 verse 10 also says that he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. In other words, the Creator walked among them. Jesus Christ, the Creator, walked among them. And I've said this a lot here lately too, but just understand, when they bumped into Jesus, they didn't realize they were bumping into God. Bumping into the Creator of the universe, the one who created the sun, the moon, the stars, the one who created the earth, the one who created the air that they breathe. That, that's who they bumped into. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? The Curator. Again, we see the verses again confirming or affirming His eternal existence. And then there's a sustainer. I love this ver- the word. It says, and by Him all things what? Consist. And we've used this verse over the years many times, and we've never covered it implicitly like this. But understand that what that word consist means, it means to cohere. It means, super, it's like thinking about superglue. It's, what, it's what's holding everything together. It's saying that Jesus Christ is not only the creator, he was not only before all things, but he is the one holding everything together. Literally what it's saying is he's holding the universe together. He is holding the universe together. He's holding it all together. He is the sustainer, he is the curator, and by him all things consist. 2 Peter 3, 7, real quick. 2 Peter 3, 7. It's back, to the, back towards the end of the New Testament. 2 Peter 3, 7. We'll back up and kind of go into this verse. It says, and uh, it's talking about those who would mock and scoff. Verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying... Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, for since the fathers died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. What is it? What is it saying there? They're ignorant of what? That by the word of God the heavens were of old. By the word of God the heavens were made. Now here it's not talking about the, what you have in your lap. It's talking about the Word of God, His voice. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and let there be light. The Word created it all. Everybody see that? They're ignorant that the Word created everything. The Word of God, His voice. Look with me again. I'm going to read that verse one more time. For this they willingly are ignorant that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the waters. Does that sound like creation? Whereby the world that, that then was being overflowed with water perished. What's that talking about? The Noah's flood. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved into fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What? It was the Word, the voice of God, that created all things, and it's the voice of God, it's the Word of God today that holds it all together. By Him all things consist. And by Him all things consist. He is the superglue holding it together. Acts 17 says that in Him, that is in Christ, We live and move and have our being. He holds our very life in His hands. He holds our very breath. He's the reason why you're breathing tonight. 
You say, well, you know, my heart's beating in my lungs. And, you know. He's holding it all together by his word. He is the superglue that holds it all together. I uh, looked up a little bit about superglue. Um, this adhesive had been advertised as so strong that one drop could hold 2,000 pounds. The glue has been used on chipped plates, knickknacks that your wife, that mom put up on the shelves. Hello, Dad. Uh, my mom had this knickknack shelf between the living room and the kitchen growing up. And on it, she had, you know, various things. Well, over the years, each one of those knickknacks got, you know, somehow fell off the shelf. And nearly, I think nearly all of them, if not all of them, at one time have been super glued back together. An elephant, you know, pottery, I don't know, lots of different things. It was pretty cool. Super glue is awesome. Chip plates, shoe soles, elephant tusks, racing cars, and even the space shuttle has had super glue used on it. The glue was first uh, devised in 1942 in search of making clear plastic gun sights for World War II. It was developed by Professor Verno uh, Griebel in the 1950s and first captured the public imagination in a TV game show in 1958 when one drop was used to lift a man off the floor. Professor Griebel, <laughs> his glue, uh, which was first known as liquid lock nut, and then what? Some of you mechanics? Loctite. You can buy the blue Loctite. You can buy the red Loctite. Isn't it amazing stuff? It's amazing. I'm looking at Brother Clay. But. <laughs> Let's see. And then Loctite and was, was put to more practical use in the age-old problem of loose nuts and bolts in machinery. He was, so, he was soon crowned the man who beat vibration. This vibration that vibrates those nuts and bolts loose, right? This amazing glue has also proved to be a lifesaver. During, during the Vietnam War, soldiers proved with uh, tubes, I'm sorry, where soldiers were provided with tubes to seal stomach wounds in the battlefield. A redefined formulation without the deadly poison uh, methyl, methyl alcohol is now used to seal post-operative wounds worldwide. It has also been used in veterinary clinics, a tortoise who cracked his shell after falling from a second floor window was successfully glued back together. That's awesome. Racing pigeons have had their feathers superglued together. Fish have had their fins reattached. And horses have had their split hooves bonded together. As amazing as it is, everybody knows what can take superglue off stuff, right? Acetone. Literally, that powerful glue, if you just got a little bottle of fingernail polish remover, you can take superglue and you can dissolve the bond. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, this hardening a little bit that something so simple can uh, cause it to weaken. I'm thankful that the superglue of the Lord does not weaken with anything. Nothing dissolves it. And Christ here, uh, Christ, Paul's description of the firm hold that Christ has on the universe uh, will never dissolve never break, and that bond will never be, never, 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 never go away. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Superglue, what an amazing invention, and by him, all things consist. Jesus Christ, all things consist. I'll move to the next point. Verse 18, 
So not only is he the curator, but he's the head of the body. Now, we covered this last Wednesday night. I preached on the church and what the church is. We defined it. We went through that. So we'll spend just a little bit of time on this and then move on. But, but Christ is the head of the body. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, which, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Again, that he is the head of the body. Again, Paul uses the body as an illustration comparing the church to a human body. And what is that? It means that the illustration is, or the analogy is, that as the human body works together, so the church members should work together. As each member of the human body works together, so should each member of the church body work together, and so forth and so on. By the way, as we think about it, he is the head, he is the head, or the authority, or the controller of the body. Now, he's the head. It doesn't mean a literal head, but the authority, the controller. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 says that the husband is the head of the wife. It's not talking about the literal head, but the authority. It is Christ by his word and Holy Spirit that controls the body. Right? In other words, the church is controlled by the, by the head, Jesus Christ, through the word and through the Holy Spirit. Not through some man not through tradition, but through the Word. Boy, you talk about traditions. You say, well, only the Catholics have traditions. Uh, I beg to differ. Uh, Baptists do as well. One of the first things we did when we started Heritage Baptist Church is we really tried very hard, and we have over the years, to be sure that the deacons of our church are biblical deacons and not following tradition. So many Baptist churches, the deacons are used in a way um, that is not found in the Bible. And so many times they find deacons in certain churches whom become um, power and, the, uh, how can I say this very kindly and politely, um, they, 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 they seek to run the church. And they do so by the way of money and the deacons and so forth. What I'm saying is, the Bible says, a deacon, you know what the word, the term, the, the word deacon means? It means servant. And nowhere in the Bible do you find them in charge of money. It's not there anywhere. But it's so many times, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying, the, the finance team in our church, which is the deacons and the trustees and the treasurer, uh, certainly uh, help and uh, oversee and help me oversee the finances. But in no way was the deacons to be like set up somewhere as the overall financial I don't know. I'm trying to be so nice. I got things I'm trying to be really nice. I really am. And we, we, were not, we, we tried to lay that out from the beginning. All right. So for instance, we, we made the trustees part of the finance team to acknowledge that the deacons in the Bible were not given authority over the finances. Right? They were, they were to take care and help with the widows and, and those who are in need and so forth and so on to help the pastor and free him up to study and those type of things in prayer, prayer, but nowhere did it put them in charge of that. What it did is it, they were supposed to be out working. They were supposed to be out being a servant. They're supposed to be out helping and doing and working and so forth. And I'm glad our deacons are that way. I'm glad our deacons are involved. They are teaching. They are working. They are helping with the fall festival. They are a, a calling and doing and working. That's what, that's what deacons were supposed to be doing. And not just coming to a finance team meeting once a month 
and sitting on some board and making decisions. Is that, is that too, that was not very mean, was it? That's pretty kind, I hope. Um, again, I, don't, I, I believe there should be oversight, and there should be, absolutely, and we've had that here, and I don't think anybody could accuse us of not having that. But at the same time, we've got to be careful that we do it the Bible way. That deacons are biblical, uh, absolutely, and, but they should also be biblical in their actions. Right? So there is Baptist traditions as well, too. And there are many a small church, and man, we've come across so many here lately, and I'm trying to be so kind. But it really, it's become, some of these smaller churches, even in our area, some of them have been without a pastor for two, you know, one or two years. And there's reasons why they're without a pastor. Do Do I want to say this publicly? Can the deacons just get out of the way and hire a pastor? And let that pastor pastor? It's, 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 it's mind-boggling to me. And so I got off on a hobby horse and I shouldn't have. But I feel better about it. And that is my heart lately. I, I, feel, I feel so much for these smaller churches who, who are without a pastor. And Brother Wiggins knows what I'm talking about. And there's a shortage of pastors today. Uh, we were talking with uh, Brother John Lunn. And uh, we're talking with Brother, um, oh, the bald-headed guy, um, who was on staff at Worth Baptist, who preached, Paul Gaiman. And Paul Gaiman got up and said, you wouldn't believe how many small churches in Michigan are without pastors. Lots and lots and lots of them. And so many times it is, it is inherent upon those churches that though they say they want a pastor, uh, they just want somebody to come in and just teach and not do much else. Okay, I'll move on. Um, okay. I just, I, I have a real heart for it. I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. And you all are looking at me like, go on, Pastor. I just don't want to. We need to pray for them. These small churches need our prayers. And uh, God would have control again. All right? Firstborn, firstborn, have the preeminence. <clears throat> he, he that is Christ, by his word, is the controller of the body. It's Christ who is the head of the church, not the deacons and not the pastor, by the way. Christ is controlled. By how? By his word. By the word of God. In other words, we're to follow the pattern and, and the rules, if you would, and those things that are taught to us in the scriptures. The epistles give us how the, how the church should be, uh, should be organized, how the church should be run, and so forth. We are to follow the word of God. And the Holy Spirit of God. As the mind controls the body, talking about this physical body, so its members, so Christ controls the members of the church. And then the Bible says here he's the firstborn. Again, firstborn, first to rise from the dead. Look there with me in verse 18 again. He who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. First thing. He is the first, again, the first in rank, firstborn, rank, order, or forerunner. He is the beginning. He's the life source, the first to rise from the dead, to rise victorious over death. You say, well, preacher, if he's the first one to rise from the dead, what about Elijah raising people from the dead? What about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ raised three people from the dead. Okay, he raised, there were seven people that were raised from the dead, according to the Bible, before uh, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. What's the difference? There is a difference in that those who were raised from the dead prior to were raised bodily from the dead 
and they all died again. Jesus Christ, of course, was in, in, in the body, in a natural body, but when he was resurrected, he was raised in a spiritual body. No, not an earthly body. Now, he still had his body, I don't, but he was in the body that we're going to receive one day. It's called a glorified body. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that body. But he's the first one who's raised from the dead, receiving the glorified body, receiving that body that doesn't hurt anymore, receiving that body that doesn't have to eat anymore, receiving, oh, that's sad, receiving, uh, receiving that body that, you know, again, no more pain, no more death, no more sickness, no more, it's amazing. What a day that will be, amen? The firstborn of, uh, the first one raised in that incorruptible body. And you can get a, um, a commentary on that from 1 Corinthians 15 that gives you a commentary on that, the difference between, again, those seven individuals who were raised from the dead and Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. The first of the resurrection. If you remember, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there were also others. The Bible says there was an earthquake, and there were others that rose from the dead. Wouldn't that have been something? You've been walking around, all of a sudden your grandmother walks up to you? It's an amazing thought. Firstborn. Raised incorruptible. And then the last part of that verse, and we'll be done tonight. We'll, we'll do verse, uh, we'll finish up later. The beginning from the dead, that is, that all things he might have what? Preeminence. Preeminence. Notice it doesn't say here to make him have preeminence, but that he might have preeminence. We don't make Christ preeminent. He is preeminent. That he might have the preeminence. Christ came before all things. Christ is to come before all things. He's to come before all things in the church. It doesn't matter whether it's a deacon or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. He's to come before all things. It's all about Christ. It's all about Him. The Old Testament temple, the Old Testament tabernacle was all about Jesus Christ. And so should Heritage Baptist Church be all about Jesus Christ. We're to look to Him, the author and finisher of our faith. This one thing I do, it's all about Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. We need to keep Jesus Christ first and foremost in the church. And when this happens, the Holy Spirit extends grace freely to the hearts of the membership and attendance. When we, when we in a service like to keep Christ uh, preeminent, when, we, when he has the preeminence, and the preacher doesn't get off on deacons and things like that, but he keeps his eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and the focus is on Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit can have his free course among the congregation, and he can extend grace freely to the congregation and to the members of the congregation. I want him to show up and make himself evident. And as we, as a church, are working together, all the members working together, striving together, laboring together with God, as we work together and, and, and harmony and in fellowship one with another, and there's not any of this stuff going on, which I'm thankful Heritage Baptist Church has been that way for a long time, and just working for the Lord and keeping our eyes on Him, the Holy Spirit shows up in a great way. Christ becomes before all things. He is to be the priority of not only the church, but He's the priority of my life. And He should be the priority of your life. Work should not be the priority of your life. And we say this all the time, but hobbies shouldn't be the priority of your life. There's no way sports should take the place of church. There's no way fishing should take the place of church. There's no way that golf should take the place of church. And I could go on and on and on and on. Basket weaving shouldn't take the place of church. I don't know what your hobby is, but hobby shouldn't take the place. Of Family shouldn't take the place of church. I get it all the time. 
Somebody will say, preacher, you know, i got so-and-so coming in, family coming in, and I, I won't be at church tonight. Hello? What are you, you know, some of you may have told me that before, sorry. But, hello? No, church is priority. I'm going to be in church. I don't care who Aunt Susie is or whatever, I'm going to be at church. Family, uh, Christ comes first. Christ comes first. Friends, uh, Christ comes before friends, and on and on and on. He should be the priority of our life. Again, Colossians 3, chapter, one and, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above. Christ should rule in our hearts. Christ should rule in our lives. He should sit on the throne of our hearts. Amen? Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain, Paul said. Christ, he said, is my life. Is Christ your life tonight? Is he, does he have preeminence in your life? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The Lord Jesus Christ stands unrivaled. He is the first place. He is first place in the universe. John Phillips said it this way. He says, some give him a place, talking about salvation. Some give Christ a prominence, you know, general control of your life. And then some individuals, some people give him preeminence. That is, make him king and lord of their life. Where are you tonight? Is Christ given a place in your life? He just gotten saved and that's all you give him? And, or maybe he's prominent in your life. Maybe he's prominent. You, know, he, you give him all the rooms in your life except maybe two or three rooms. You give him access to every part of your life except one or two areas. Or is he preeminent? Is he supreme? Is he lord? Is he the boss? Is he the king of your life? He ought to be preeminent. He ought to have the preeminence in your life. In him, it says there in verse 19, that it's the fullness, the fullness of all. He is deity. He is the source of all New Testament blessings. By the way, it says there that he pleased the Lord, pleased God, that in him dwells all the fullness. Again, fullness there means the deity, deity. What a thought that God is happy that Christ, upon Christ, is placed all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2, verse 9. If you look over the other side of the page, Colossians 2, verse 9. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It pleased the Lord that in him he controls it all. He can trust him. He is the creator. He holds it all together. We ought to trust him with our church and with our life. He is the authority. Is he the authority in your life? The God of the universe was pleased to send Jesus Christ in order to rescue us, to save us, and to give us knowledge of himself. So thankful that God was willing to send his son for us. Amen. Let's all stand. Never know what you do on this side, what it'll mean on the other side. And look forward to that. Well, in the beginning... There was Brother Johnson of Heritage Baptist Church. Not in the beginning, beginning, but in the beginning of Heritage Baptist Church, there was the Johnsons standing behind Pastor and beside Pastor and guiding him and helping him to start the Heritage Baptist Church. He was our sending pastor, and we're so thankful for Brother Johnson. Brother Johnson, you come preach to us this morning. Looking forward to what the Lord has for us this morning. Don't help me there.
Well, that's almost true in the beginning. When I, uh, I think back and uh, I noticed on the wall back in, the, we came in the back door, I guess you'd call it. And uh, so uh, I noticed as I came down the wall the pictures there of the organization service. And I saw Brother Kelly, and of course he's one of the first ones I remember, along with some of the other men that were here. And uh, I looked there, and I saw that, and I saw him, and I said, man, he's getting old. And, uh, and uh, sure enough, when I did see him a little bit later, you know, he was, he's quite a bit older than he was. But then again, I'm a whole lot older than I was. As, uh, I was uh, talking with Brother Wiggins, and a uh, lady was there, came up and was talking to us. And, and uh, she laid, later, but anyhow, I'm not telling who it was, but anyhow, she's talking about her husband and said, you know, he grew up so tall and to five, five, five foot four, I think what she said, and said, and then his hair quit growing, and so he grew out of his hair. And I said, uh, man, I guess that's what happened to me. I said, I just don't know when I stopped growing or when my hair stopped growing, and I kept on going, you know. But uh, there's a few things that happen to you along the way when you get a little bit older and your memory's not quite as good except for way, way back yonder. And uh, I remember when uh, the church was starting and, and uh, over the other part of town in the storefront, the first time that I remember preaching on this property, we were in a tent. And I've been here several occasions since then, and we're very thankful. But I think of all the times that I've been here, I think this is the first time I've been here that Brother Eric hadn't been here. And... Uh, uh, so I, I find that he, after all these years, he finally trusted me one day by myself. <laughs> so I guess he thought that maybe that y'all would forgive me and him too since I am so old now. Then you'd say, well, we have to look over those old folks. You know, they don't remember what they're doing or whatever the case might be. But uh, nonetheless, we are thankful for that. And and, but then I've had several, and of course, Brother Eric could have easily called on any one of the preachers that are here and part of the church here, and he could have called any one of them to, to preach. But he feels sorry for me because he, he calls me his pastor, and so I appreciate that. And they've all been very complimentary this morning about me being here to preach. You know, they've encouraged me and said, well, you've really got to do a good job and or this or that or the other and so I thought man they must be expect, expecting me to fall flat on my face and uh, so I thought I would think about this for a moment and, and if and if I do we all remember that I'm old okay and uh, so nonetheless well let's ask the Lord to bless before we begin this morning our father we bow in your presence today and we pray for brother Eric and the group that's on the mission trip and we thank you father that that the church continues to be involved in mission efforts around the world and brother eric with a heart for missions and getting the opportunity to see and be there along with many of the people and and father the people that are remaining here they would like to be with him to see the work and the ministry that goes on in the foreign places and and exactly as the song was sung and songwriter thought about so many that need you around the world and 
you've given us a job to do, so I pray, Father, today you'll help me with that message that we have from you today. We pray that you'll bless now, have your way in each of our lives. But most of all, if there be one here today without you as their Savior, may today be that day they would put their faith and trust in you so that they would be ready then for the day that we know is coming when the trumpet will sound. And when he does, we will rescind into heaven to be with you, and we'll thank you for that. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, uh, every time, uh, especially uh, as you get a little older and you begin to, I think, meditate on some things a little bit more deeply and a little longer than you did in the beginning, uh, but since I have retired from pastoring full times, when I, when I open my Bible, I am reminded more deeply, I guess you would say, that it is an inspired book. If you have a moment, just flip over, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter, Second uh, Peter there, if you would, and we'll look at, at chapter 2, and, and, uh, or chapter 1, rather, and we'll look at two or three verses there. And I want you to think about this because the message that I want to share with you this, to, this morning, I feel like uh, it will be out of the Gospel of Luke, but I want us to sort of get a head start on it. But notice what he said as Peter was writing, and we'll begin in verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Now notice verses 21, 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that there, is no prop, uh, no, uh, that there is no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in olden time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now every day, as we, whether we think about it or not, when we stop to pick up our Bible, we have a, should have the most treasured thing that we could have to hold in our hand. Because we've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and we hold Him in our heart with the Holy Spirit indwelling us as well. But we think about that, that Holy men of old spake as they were moved. Peter now, and all the time that we give him so much trouble, is writing to you and I, and he's telling us this. There's no private interpretation. We could go back to Acts chapter 15 where they're arguing a little bit over uh, the resurrection and some other things and, and, and the gospel going to the Gentiles and write them down and things of this nature. And we would see that they, they all came together and they agreed. And with that agreement, then it was written in the Scriptures. And it was then recorded in the book of Acts by Luke. I want you to go with me now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and we'll begin our message. And the message has a title, and it will seem plumb out of place as I preach this morning, but it's entitled, Are You Ready for the Rapture? You'd say, well, of course I am. I'm saved by the grace of God. Well, let's look and see and and wonder if we have a right mindset, just like Luke was trying to write to Theophilus as he wrote to him in the Gospel of Luke as well as in the book of Acts. 
and he's talking to them, and my, my thinking is this. I wonder, I wonder in my heart and my mind as I read that in Peter where it said, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were moved. And, and, and it stops me and, and gets me to wonder. I, I just wonder, I wonder in my heart and our mind how did they feel when they knew as they sat down with a quill in their hand and an ink bottle and some, wasn't paper, but it was mashed out leaves and things that they had done or either some leather that they had cured and they began to scribble on it. What they wanted to say, but it was also by the divine guidance of God that he inspired them to write the words that we needed, and he knew they would be everlasting. Just as Luke and Acts is written to Theophilus, it was a personal letter from a friend. The best we can tell from history, Theophilus along with Luke both came from up in Antioch, Assyria area, where the church there was in Acts chapter 13. And somewhere along the line, for some reason, Luke decided that he needed to set down a clear understanding of all that had happened. And so he begins to write to this friend to be sure. He wanted to be sure that he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that what he had been instructed in the past was true. Now open with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse number 1. And notice how he begins to write now. But now don't forget now, the Spirit of God is moving upon him and guiding his words, not a dictation. It's his personality. It's his vocabulary. It's his education. It's his learning. It's that's what he has gathered from the listening to Paul and Peter and and, and the others as he's walked with them and run all the way through the book of, of Acts. It's already all taken place, but he's just not writing it yet. And notice as he begins to say this now in the first, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things, now notice what he said, which are most assuredly, most assuredly believed among us it's not a question if there's a doubt he said i want you to know and he said for as much or since or as we know and and he goes on to this as as we know as many have already taken in hand we know that matthew and mark and luke were all written somewhere along in the same period of time in the early 60 ad's now, when we come to the Gospel of John, and we come then to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, if we're not careful, we would thank them and just try to cram them all in there. Oh, but it didn't happen that way. Because, see, God had a plan, and He knew that John was going to need to write his uh, uh, gospel and his epistles way down in the 90s, and finally the book of Revelation in A.D. 96. Why? So that it would, that old age that we're talking about, John, when he begins to write his book, 
was getting somewhere in his 90s, getting close to 100. He lived, supposedly, most, most historians believe, at least to be 102 years old and died in Ephesus. But we find now, as we look at Luke here now, he's beginning to write, and notice as, he, as I read it again, and I'll probably read it more than once, not because I forgot I, for, I, forgot I read it, because we need to read it and reread it and reread it. Now notice what he said. For as much as many, Matthew, Mark, they've already written, and no telling how many others. Now he's not saying that they were incorrect, but you will find things in Luke that you will not find in any of the other Gospels. You will find the 20, or the 70 rather, that were gathered together and, and the Lord Jesus Christ empowered them and sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. And he'll talk about that later as we look at it in Acts. But notice as we, as we look at these and notice what he said, for as many have taken in hand, and notice what he said, to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. See, it's important that we get this deep in our heart and our mind. Hold your place in Acts and flip over, I mean in Luke and flip over to Acts chapter 1. You'll, be, you'll almost think, and since we are, and he's writing again. And, and now think about this. As Luke came to the close of the gospel of Luke and, and then sent it to Theophilus, and Theophilus got it and read it and came to the end, I, I just wonder if Theophilus wondered. I wonder if he'll tell me more. I wonder if he'll tell me more. And every time that, you know, church opens... You should be here because the preacher's going to tell you more. It may not be the preacher you like, but it's the preacher that God has on for the day. And it may not be the exact message that you like, but there's one thing you must always forget or never forget and always remember that the Word of God never returns unto the Father void. It will do a work in the heart of an individual if they've got a listening ear and an open heart. And so it makes important, it's important then, that as we begin to remember that, that God has a purpose. I remember, you know, you and I know that if we've had old cars, and some of you don't know about that, but back years ago we used to have what they call shade tree mechanics. That's because they'd pull their car under a shade tree and they'd work on them there. Now we don't. We have what we call technicians. And, you know, and they don't know anything about you know, fixing the transmission, but they can read them computers. And, you know, we, well, I better not go there anymore. Amen? We might get somebody all upset. But I'm simply saying is this, God knows what He's doing, and He knows when He's doing and how to do it if we're open to His manner. Now, notice what He said. Now, remember now, the thought I've got here is so you won't forget, because I know that some of you are old as well those things which are most assuredly believed among us. Now notice in Acts chapter 1, beginning in, in verse number 1. The former treaties, now that's what Luke is calling what he had written before. That's just in other words put down a systematic exposition of everything that took place. And then he goes on, Have I made, O Theophilus, of all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now notice that. 
He said, I, I've written a former treaty of all those things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And so what we're looking at is, is the truth of the Word of God. There is no private interpretation. But He wants us to get a hold of something that He's got more to say to us than one verse. He's got 66 books that He penned and put together for our purpose of knowing who He is, what He is, and what our world's going to be like. Now, if you would take a moment and just turn back a page in your Bible from Acts to the closing, or well, yeah, to the closing of, of John's Gospel, and no, go with me to chapter 21 and verse number 25 and see what John says about all the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. In verse 25 of chapter 21, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And then he said, Amen. What is he saying? You and I just have a small, small sample of the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. We have just a small sampling, just a small sampling. You know, a lot of times you go in some of these barbecue places and they'll give you some barbecue and then they'll give you a little thing about this big round of coleslaw. They call that a sampling. If you go into Sam's, years, years ago, if you'd go into Sam's, you know, they'd have people around there and give you samplings, you know, just enough. But now, if you were smart, and it was a good day, they had these all over sounds, and you could get a pretty good meal with all the samplings. Amen? And that's the way it is with the Scripture. Sometimes, if you don't think time, you've got a meal for the whole thing, well, just skip through it, and, and you get fed well from the Word of God with a verse here and a verse there and a verse here because God knows what we need, and He wants to give it to us. Now go back with me, if you would, to the book of Luke, and let's move on if we could. And notice what he said as he moved on. He said, of those things which are most assuredly believed among us, even, now notice this, because this is important, even as they were delivered, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, now, I want you to think about this because, see, this is vitally important because the Scripture also tells us that you and I, you and I, because it has been delivered unto us, the Scriptures, all of them, have been entrusted as stewards of the mysteries of God. There's 18 of them that is in the Bible. You say, what is a mystery? A mystery is a truth that had not yet been revealed when they were written. And then Paul revealed most all 18 of them through his writings, because God gave him the mystery of the church. He gave him the mystery of the resurrection. He gave him others as you'd go on and read. But he wants us to tell us that you and I, we're responsible. We're responsible. We've been entrusted as to be stewards of the Word of God. Are you with me yet? See, sometimes we don't think about that. And every time we pick up this book, if we don't honor it and reverence it like we should, understanding that this is the divine Word of God through uh, 40 different writers over a period of 1,600 years that God wanted you and I to make sure that we got it put in our heart, not just in our head, in our heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, 
and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Are you with me yet? Are they with me yet, brothers? Are you there yet? I'm, I was checking to see if you, was, if you got rid of Ruth yet. Okay. You say, why are you saying? Okay, let's go on now because we want to know. And let's, let's look at now as he moves on in the last one. He said, it seems good to me also, having had perfect understanding. Now that word perfect in the simplest form there just means that we had grown. When I first got saved, I was nearly 28 years old. I didn't know anything about the Scriptures. And, uh, but you know, since then, I have matured in my knowledge of the Scripture. I'm not perfect yet, and I won't be with my knowledge. There's still a lot of things I'm learning. I, I get ready to preach just like for this, this sermon. I've preached this sermon two other times. But the first time it was one way, the second time it's another way, and today it's another way. You say, how come? Because I just keep learning. I just keep learning. For the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the jar and the mark. And as a discerner of the thought and the intent of the heart. See, this word, this word works on you. It looks into your heart. It looks into your soul because it's a living word. For the word of God is quick. Now, you know what quick means, don't you? It means, it means living. You, you know, you, do you ever get a little bit of that right there beside your fingernail? and you start pulling up on it, you know, it's got a little bit of that thing, and it gets down into quick, that doesn't mean you got a fast finger. It just means it gets down where it hurts because it's alive. And that's what the Word of God does. It gets down into the heart where it begins to prick like it did in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. And they were pricked in their hearts and they repented of their sins. Oh, but then it can get, it can get bad if you go to Acts chapter 7, and when we find it there, I think it's in about verse 52, when Stephen was preaching. When he was preaching, and the preacher began to preach in such a manner, and he told them that they were, in, in a sense, in a sense. I'm going to paraphrase this. This is from the book of Johnson. It's not in your Bible, but that's okay. And it said that, you know, it pricked in their hearts. It didn't there. Not in Acts 7. It said it cut into their hearts. That cut is different from a prick. A prick is from the Old Testament with the, with the gold that they used for driving their oxen. And it would just prick them in the neck and they would turn. And that pricking makes you and I turn with repentance and begin to go in another direction. But when that, when that word begins to cut... It's a lacerating wound, as the Scripture tells us in the Greek. It's a lacerating wound. What does it do? Well, it drives them to anger, not to repentance. And so what did they do to poor Stephen? They killed him because they couldn't stand the Word of God. Well, I've got to, I've got to move on in, in order to get this message in, and there's not a clock anywhere to be seen. Oh, here it is. It's too close. I've got bad, you know, up vision, so I'll take my glasses off. 
when we think about this, he wanted to set this declaration for them, as we've seen, because he had perfect understanding of all the things from the very first to write to thee in order, O most excellent Theophilus. Now notice this, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Might I remind you today that not everybody preaches the truth. Not everybody preaches the truth. But there's one thing you can count on. Your preacher preaches the truth. There's one thing you can count on. He's got a heart for you and this church. You can tell by the way that its ministries run and by the way he cares and loves for you. You're, you're very fortunate to have this preacher and this staff that you've got. You better, you better thank God over and over again every day that you've got him. You say, well, I don't like, well, it don't make no difference whether you like it or not. It's God that does it. Amen. Well, let's go on now and notice what we're noticing here. I wasn't supposed to say that today. So uh, I'm not going to say erase it. I want you to highlight it. Okay? Now notice as we move on that from the very beginning, the recipient of this now was Theophilus. Now in Luke, he calls him most, most excellent because he probably was like a governor who basically in one sense of the word was more like a, a guardian of the city or whatever that is in those situations. But nonetheless, anyhow, there he was and, and he's writing to him and he wanted him to be sure that he understood and that he was getting the truth. He was getting the truth even though all these others had been written. All these others had written. He said, I have, I am the, I have studied it. I have been, have been written and, and read and things of this nature. I've worked with Paul. I've worked with Peter. I've worked with all the others. But now, he's sitting and it's God that's moving. It has nothing to do with the words of a man. It has to be being moved by the Spirit of God. And Luke is writing because he wants them to understand these things. And, and, and we begin to notice this. And with that knowledge that he had, it, he said, it seemed good to me. It seemed good to me. When I think about that, he's, he's read the other writings and everything, and he said, you know, I, 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 feel, I feel Theophilus. I feel Theophilus. You're my friend. You're my friend. I need to be sure that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know the gospel so you can know that you know, that you know that you've been saved by grace. I don't want you to, I don't want you to guess. I want you to know it. Because I'm telling you all those things that are most assuredly believed among us. Don't leave your friends in dark. You say, well, they go to another church. Do they know the truth? Do they know the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help me God. That's what Luke is doing now. He's wanting Theophilus, his friend. I mean, the possibility they were raised as boys together and one went one way and one went another way. Oh, but now Luke now, he wasn't just anybody. 
Colossians 1.14 says he was called uh, the most beloved physician, a doctor. And he wanted to know that his friend knew exactly what he needed to know to be saved. And we go on then, and, and so later he begins to write uh, to, uh, to Theophilus again. A, a good number of years. I'm going to skip on over there because my time's running out, if you would. Go with me back over now to the book of Acts, and we'll notice something. As we come to the book of Acts, and he begins to write to him another time. It's been somewhere, somewhere. Many will say it's been one year. But many of them, like Schofield and others and Ungers, who have dated the different books and things, will tell us that Luke was written sometime around 61, and then that Acts was written somewhere around 65. But that leaves us with about four years. But then they'll turn around and tell you that Luke and Acts were only written a year apart. I think they used new math instead of the old math like we was taught. Amen? And uh, you'd say, well, what difference? It doesn't make any difference because the books is what counts. If you've got a, if you've got a study Bible like I have and it's got notes in it, just remember that where those lines changes, one is inspired and one is not. One is of God and one is of man. Okay, you with me? Now notice when we go to Acts, we'll read it again in the beginning. Oh, the former treatise that I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Now we stop and think about that because we've already read uh, in Acts uh, or in John's Gospel where that they he, Jesus had could done so many things that they couldn't write them all in the book. But you'll find also in the last chapter of John's gospel, as in the last part of Luke's gospel, he begins to tell how that those apostles, even though he had chose them, the Bible tells us very quickly that in Matthew 10, 12, he had called unto him his 12 disciples. Mark 13, 3, 13, 14 said, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him. And Luke 6, 13 said, and he chose 12 to whom he also would call apostles, which simply means that they were chosen to carry out the work. They were the delegation, the ambassadors that he was going to be using to carry on the preaching of the Word of God. Are you all with me? Okay, I don't want to lose you because this is all introduction. The sermon's about an hour long. Okay. Okay. But now, so he's already chose them and he's put, but now they saw him crucified. They saw him crucified. And the Bible makes it very plain in Luke's gospel, as well as in John's gospel, that they'd tuck tail and run. They hid. Said they'd hid because they were afraid. You know, many Christians today have tucked tail. They're saved. We're going to heaven. And we'll be pretty vocal on Sunday morning in the church house. But we're pretty quiet the other time. But they tucked tail. They went and hide, the Bible says, for fear of the Jews. But now these were the men that Jesus spent three and a half years with, had trained them, prepared them, got them ready. And he wanted them to understand that 
I've got a job for you to do, and that job is to build a church. But now they were hid. They were hid now. And then Jesus arose from the dead. And the Bible makes it plain. Go ahead and read with me here. And he said in verse 2, Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he had, through the Holy Ghost, given them commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Now that's going to be coming on in a minute. But notice, I want you to notice verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. Now notice this. By many infallible truths. We have a Bible and we call it an inerrant, infallible, verbal, preliminary, inspired Word of God. Every one of those are important. The inerrant means that there's no heresy. Infallible means that there's no fallacy. Every truth and doctrine it teaches is true. It cannot be, de it cannot be denied. And in every word, in every section of the Word, not, not a meaning God used words not words that they took and gave it some kind of meaning but God used their words as they spoke from their hearts the things that God moved them in their hearts to write are you with me see this is important this is important for you to understand. God uses men. God uses men. He's always chose to use men. He could have used stones, the Bible says. But He did not, did not choose to use a stone. He chose to use you. He chose to use me. He chose us for His vessels. As He said, some to honor, some to dishonor. Brother, Wigden said this morning, you know, he said, you know, some's eyes, some the nose, some the feet, some the thumb, some the little finger. We're all necessary in the body of Christ. There's nobody, nobody that is to be thought of as being little or big. Sometimes we get to thinking about preachers and you got big preacher, little preacher. Let me tell you something. There's no big preacher. There's no little preacher. It's all done by the Holy Spirit of God. If he's not led by the Holy Spirit of God, he's not really preaching. He's just talking. Now notice as we move on because he wants us to understand this. He had chosen them. But now notice what it said. To, he showed himself alive after his passion. The word passion is crucifixion. By many infallible proofs being seen what? Forty days. Now, Jesus has been crucified. He came forth from the grave on the third day and for the next forty days. He was taking and teaching and inspiring these apostles to fight the fear. I want you to understand, you have the power for the victory. And I've got a job for you to do. And so now, he's already commanded them, and they've all gathered now out on the Mount of Olives. And they're gathered there, and Jesus has been talking to them, and right on down the line, and he's getting ready to ascend into the heavens. 
and he's fixing to go up and, and, and hear the, uh, as he tells them, notice, I want you to notice this. I've got to hurry along and get to this point. Now notice what he said as he moved on in verse number eight. And being, I mean, verse number four, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And when they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Now notice this, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Now wait a minute. Jesus has been spending three and a half years. The last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke tells us that in each one of these, he gave them a commission, did he not? What was that commission? To get ready for a new world? No. To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That was his commission. Now notice what Jesus tells them here. Because see, now they were, they were looking for him. They were ready for him now to come in. And they, he, they were ready for him to, uh, since he, basically they were thinking in their mind, Jesus is alive. We can do anything. Jesus is alive. I mean, what more can you expect? He's conquered death. He's walked out of that tomb. And here he is for 40 days. We've seen him. We've seen him eat. We've seen him walk through walls. We've seen him do everything. He can do anything. So notice, if you would, in our verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, Lord, will that this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Now notice what Jesus said. Jesus said, you asked the wrong question, boys. You haven't been listening. You haven't been listening. I'm not going to bring in the kingdom of God now. Nobody knows when that's going to happen as he goes on in the verse. And he said, that's in the, that's in the Father's hands. He said, that is none of your business. But notice what he said. Notice what he said, and he wants us to get this. It's in verse 7. It's not for you to know the time nor the season which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And what? Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, I'm not going to change the world. I'm not going to change the world. He said, in fact, I've already told you. I told you back, that back early over in Matthew's gospel. He said, I told you that remember this, and it will come to pass basically, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the coming of the Son of Man. He said, you've got to remember, things are not going to get better. The world is not going to get Christian friendly. It's not going to be easy for you and I to live in this world in which we're living. It's going to get darker and darker and darker because as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of man also. Then he told us in the New Testament, in, in Timothy's Gospel, 2 Timothy chapter, I think it's 3 and verse 1, he said, This know also that in the last days there shall be perilous times. Now, we're moving into those times, but everybody keeps thinking it's going to get better. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. 
And Jesus said, it's not. And so he told them, he said, but the power of the Holy Ghost is going to make a difference. But you've got you've to lend yourself to that first. And this is what he said. Notice again as we read it in verse number 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the other posts, uttermost parts of the earth. And then notice verse eight, or 9. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld him, he was taken up. Oh, this was different. He's really going away. He's not going to be here. Yes, he's alive. Yes, he's alive. But we're alone. And Jesus kept telling them, wait for the promise. Wait for the promise. Wait for the promise. And oh, what a difference it was in Acts chapter 2. Ten days later, they waited and went from the 40 days of seeing him to 10 days in prayer and the Holy Spirit came down and empowered them and might I remind you the same power they got you got so don't, don't ask yourself well why, why can't I be victorious like they were it's because we're not willing to spend the time in prayer and surrender of ourselves but as, they, as he started up as he started up like this, they stood there gazing. What was in their mind? What am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? And see, as he went on, and then there was two men in white apparel, angels, if you would, were stooding by, standing by. And they said, why are you standing here gazing? Why are you standing here gazing? Get on up there where he told you to go, back to Jerusalem. That's where he was so mocked and crucified and, and, and everybody made such a display of him in every manner. And that's where, that's where the victory's going to come. He's going to show the world in Jerusalem where they crucified him that he is God. And so they went back and waited. But see, Jesus was telling them, said, oh, you've got it all wrong. I'm not going to change the world. You are. I have equipped you. I have trained you. I have empowered you. I have commissioned you. I have done everything that's needed for you to turn the world upside down. And Acts tells us that they turned the world upside down. Now I ask you this question. Are you ready for the rapture? You say, what's that got to do with it? Plenty. Because we know that in a moment and a trump and just a twinkle of an eye, we're going to be going out of here. How fast are we going to go up? I don't know. It seems here in, Act, in, in Acts where Jesus was going up that he was going up slowly, just slowly. And they watched him 
as he finally began to descend behind the clouds. And then there was a wake-up call. You're just gazing. Go to work. Go to work. You've got a church to build, not a world to change, but a church to build because it's going to get wicked and wicked and wicked and wicked. And when we're going up in the rapture, how will it be? I don't know. I don't know. We all seem to think that it'll take place in a moment of 25. That's talking about being changed. You shall be changed in a moment and the twinkling of an eye. Read the verse. Read every one of the ver words in the verse. The trumpet sounds, and we're going to go up. But will we be wondering as we ascend into the heavens as possibly Luke was when he sat down with pen in his hand, as we look back possibly from our ascension going up and look back on a world in chaos and in disaster and be wondering about our friends, our family, our co-workers, our neighbors, the unknown that we didn't know, are we going to even be thinking about them? See, the disciples were having some trouble. They thought it was going to be better. But he said, oh, no, it's going to be bad. And from that time on, they fell under persecution. They, fit, they met the, the headman the headman with his big swords and whatever else. Their heads rolled. John the Baptist, before this even took place, they carried his head in on a silver platter. And Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you. Now our problem is, is just like the disciples. We've got a wrong mindset. We've got to get back into the book and read it and believe it. Because this tells us the truth and there's no private interpretation it will be worse before it gets better you'd say well that's not much of a promise oh yes it is go back and read Luke if you would chapter 16 where it tells you about the horrible situation that it will be in hell and you'll be glad you'll be glad that in your heart you know you're saved by the grace of God. But you know, you and I are not ready for the rapture until we're ready because we have finished our task here. He left us a commission and he left us a church to build. That's exactly what the business of Heritage Baptist Church is about, building a church. Every one of you is involved in building the church. Not one, not two, not three. The whole body fits together to get the job done. But it'll only get done when we become busy about our business for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your goodness. We pray that you'll just bless now the time that we've had together. And Father, may, may the message today
even though it may be seem harsh nor hard and long, but it's a message of truth. We need to be sure that we've got the right mindset. As the Scripture told us as Paul was writing in the book of Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And when he found himself fashioned as a man, he became obedient even to the death on the cross. So, Father, as we think about our life and the salvation that you've granted us because you gave your life, may we be willing, may we be willing to give our lives to you that others might know you and the free pardon of sin. Because you told us in John 10, 10, that you came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And so may we, may we grab the truth, Father, from your word that living for you and walking for you and doing your will in our life will not be a downer, but it will be a time of joy and refreshing and rejoicing. Oh, there'll be hard, there'll be hard valleys to cross There'll be mountains that sometimes we'll wonder, can we go over them? But we do know that in the end, it will be worth it all. I pray, Father, for one that here today might be unsaved, that they'd be saved today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. On behalf of our church and staff, thank you for listening to this sermon. For more sermons and more information about our church, please visit hbchazlett.com dot org